Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, everybody. This week, Raina tells her story. So we thought we would start season two with her story since we started season one with mine. We think you're really going to like it. She talks a lot about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families and really gets to the core issues of what her trauma is. So hope you enjoy the show. Namaste. Hey, everybody. I'm Rex. I'm Raina. And this is No Love, the podcast. Uh, it's been a while. Missed you dearly, warmly, truly. Uh, we thought since we we started season one off with my story that we would start season two off with Raina's story. So it, today it's just going to be her and I having a conversation just with me, her, and all y'all. So uh, sorry if there's not a lot of eye contact with the camera, but this is more of you, got, you guys are kind of just watching in on this one so um yeah with that i'm just gonna hand it over to her all right and he may he may prod me or help me along if i get uh if i get hung up a little bit um he'll he'll act as our our wonderful warm host um you guys know me as reina um my name is marcy um i'm an adult child in recovery and discovery um so if you're unfamiliar, an adult child is um, an adult child of an alcoholic or dysfunctional family. Um, one of the 12-step programs that, um, one of the wonderful ones that have sprung from, you know, the, the heritage and lineage of AA. Uh, and it's more of a, um, you know, I would say it more falls into the family of like Al-Anon or CODA. Um, the first ACA group came from, um, a group of Al-Anon, al who had transitioned from teenagers to adults. And, uh, they found that the, tra- the traditional Al-Anon just didn't, didn't seem to work for them. They, um, they, f- they had their own issues. It wasn't just dealing with someone else's stuff. Um, so thankfully, um, all these beautiful people have done so much work for all of us to, to come up and learn from. Um, 
so we'll zip back in time now. Um, so I was raised in an alcoholic and dysfunctional family. Um, I believe I'm third or fourth generation um, alcoholic and um, in my interpretation of things, which is only mine, so please don't don't blanket it with all my family. Um, but I, w- I would say that my mother was definitely an, an adult child. Um, and I know that my grandmother was raised in an alcoholic family home also. So I believe I'm probably a third generation adult child. Um, it's taken me 47, eight years to figure this out. Um, so it's been quite the journey. Um, you got there right on time. <laughs> right. That's that. We, we hope, right. That we all, we all make it exactly when we're supposed to. Um, you know, I had a, a horrible upbringing, um, a lot of abandonment, a lot of shame, um, physical abuse. Um, there was, you know, sexual abuse that came into play because when you're an unattended child, um, it, you, you become prey to the, the other people around you who would take advantage of things like that. Um, and so from a very young age of five, um, began the sexual molestation. Um, I don't remember when being left alone began because I always remember being left alone. Um, so lots of fear, the dark, lots of, um, neglect as far as nutrition and, um, all the things, you know, all the things. Um, I, I would say that there's probably some narcissistic tendencies, um, with my mom. Um, which no, I'm not throwing any shade or any hate because I honestly, my interpretation of a narcissist is just a broken empath. So, um, I just think some people get hurt in ways that, that shift them in certain ways and other people get hurt in ways that shift them in other ways. But for my mom, um, there was definitely a very, um, self-centeredness, um, about her that translated as, as some pretty hefty narcissism. Um, so like I said, you know, uh, the physical abuse and sexual abuse and, um, and the neglect started as pretty much far back as I can remember. And, um, my understanding at this point is that when there's that much victimization going on, there's kind of this learned helpness, helplessness, this, this, um, we begin to perpetuate the victimization in our own lives because that's the role we're playing. That's the way we're showing up. Um, and that definitely was true for me. I was either the victim of it all or the rescuer trying to, um, rescue mom and, um, definitely over parentified. Um, I, my brother was born when I was 10, um, which made it that I was big enough to just kind of shift him over to me. And so if he wasn't with grandma and grandpa, he was usually with me alone at home. Um, so yeah, there was the, I I was definitely parentified at a young age. Um, and on it went, you know, um, I didn't do that great in school. Um, when you're dealing with that much trauma on a continual basis, it's really hard to focus on anything, but just kind of getting by. Um, but I made it, I squeaked through. Um, 
and then you know more trauma came along like real life trauma um my my cousin was in a horrible accident my junior year of school um and that was that was a pretty hefty blow for me because she was my best friend at the time one of my best friends um and always had been had always been one of my biggest supporters and protectors and um someone who I I felt you know really really loved me despite everything else um so that was a huge blow um and then, you know, regular, regular trauma at that point, like losing grandparents. And, um, but as soon as I could leave my mom's house, I thought I'll be fine. I'm just going to put all that behind me. <laughs> I'm just going to, um, you know, carry on with my fierce independent streak. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you haven't felt it yourself, you know, people who are like, oh, well, that's in the past. Why would you want to bring that up? Why would you want to live in that place? Why would you want to? focus on that shit at all, you know? Um, so I, I tried not to, you know, mom and I's issues were ongoing. Um, her alcoholism was, you know, <laughs> continually debilitating, um, as alcoholism is. Um, and I had, you know, I, I played with, um, drinking, had some horrible experiences with drinking in high school. Um, again, with more victimization piled on, um, but, you know, when I, when I left my mom's house, I went on tour with the Grateful Dead and I thought, I'm, I'm free, I'm, but I, I wasn't a drinker. It wasn't, um, I, I didn't, I wasn't using, um, substances in that way at that time. Um, and then I got pregnant. Um, and, you know, probably, most certainly, um, having my children saved my life. Um, I wasn't going to be, a I wasn't going to be a, a, a drunk mother or a using mother. I wanted to be present for my children. Um, and I spent, you know, a good 15, 20 ish years, um, very much investing in them and investing in being a really good mom. Um, I had, you know, some, a divorce in there and then got remarried and had three more children and, um, ended up divorced from him. Um, and the, the pain never really went away though. Um, looking back now, you know, it's so, it's, it's strange to look back on our stories because it's, it's a different interpretation than we have when we're living it. Um, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't, I didn't really know what was wrong. Um, I knew that I couldn't really handle um, stress. I couldn't, um, I, I would get knocked from my center really easily. Um, you know, there were years there where if my, if my mother even called my phone or left a message on my phone, I would shake for hours. Um, so I knew I had this in, intense response to my mother. Where's your dad? Oh, uh, no dad. Um, my mom and dad split when I was one-ish, I think maybe one and a half. Um, I know by the time I was two, I believe we were living in Ohio, at least by that point. Um, and you're from? Colorado. Yeah. Eaton, Eaton Colorado. Eaton, Colorado. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you said that. And my not. father, I don't think so. Yeah. And my father um, was from Platteville. Um, both my mom and dad were black sheep. 
of their families, um, the troublemakers of their families. Um, so generational, super generational on both sides. Very much so. Very, very much so. Yes, because I've met your aunts, mm -hmm. and they're beautiful, mm -hmm. wonderful people. Uh, and then, like, your mom was a absolute recluse. Mm -hmm. She had her own demons that... Well, her, her shame ate her alive. It yeah, really did. It literally did. Yeah. It, it became a cancer. It, it did. It literally became cancer. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, you're fine. <laughs> so the, the massive abandonment of my childhood, um, you know, it, it just, it stacked up. It stacked up in my nervous system. Um, I, at nine years old was diagnosed with um, stomach ulcers. I had chronic strep throat, um, which, I, you know, I believe all of this is, is a huge part of my story because I have health issues now that I believe are a result of, of my life. Um, so yeah, dad was pretty much absent. Um, he came around a few different times over the years trying to kind of, I don't know, um, I, I won't say establish a connection because that's not at all what was happening. Um, I don't know why he came around every once in a while. Um, it seemed like when he would get a new partner, a new wife, um, which he had a few, um, that he would he would try to see if, if I could fit in that. Um, and I, that didn't ever go very well. Um, I didn't have much to do with that family growing up. Um, and, you know, as previously mentioned and is part of the story of many, many ACAs, um, you know, he, he came from a family that dealt with alcoholism also. Um, so yeah, dad was a, um, career criminal and drug addict, um, through, throughout his entire life, um, spent, you know, lots of lots of time in, in jail. Um, and yeah, just was not, not present. Um, which is, is funny. I, I, I make the joke that I don't, I don't have time to deal with my daddy issues cause I'm too busy dealing with my mommy issues. Um, but you know, as this, as my recovery and discovery is, um, unfolding and as more is revealed, um, I'm, I'm settling more into being able to look at all that with a little bit more equanimity. Um, so yeah, childhood sucked. Um, a lot of aloneness, a lot of um, fear and hunger and um, so much shame because, um, you know, as a child, you don't understand why people don't want to be close to you or why they don't love you or why um, it's just incomprehensible. You can't. Um, and then the and then the kindnesses that are given to you here and there, it's so few and far between compared to how much you're starving for that, that, um, you know, I, 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 I wonder now looking back, like how many times did people try to genuinely connect and I just couldn't. I, when you're that needy, you're not able to show up 100%. You're just, you're just not able to. Um, 
And so I'm not sure, you know, um, I had some aunts do some really beautiful things for me. And I already spoke of my cousin and I's connection. My other two cousins, two girl cousins and I were really close at times also. Um, so I knew that people loved me. It just didn't feel like they did. Um, I couldn't understand why if they loved me, they would leave me in this situation. Um, and when my brother came, um, it, things were very different for him. He was um, taken in by my grandparents. And um, so when mom was at the bar or like if he wasn't left at home alone with me, he was with grandma and grandpa. And um, that that created a whole, a whole different situation for him, you know, with lots of sports and lots of um, nurturing of his talents and um, care about his schooling and his grades. And um, it, it didn't turn out to be to his benefit necessarily um, because my, my brother um, struggles with addiction, um, heroin, meth, um, just about anything he can get his hands on, which is very ACA. Um, not to, not to diagnose anybody else. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a sucky, sucky childhood. Um, and you know, I, I, I kind of hate to do this part of like the storytelling thing where you, you know, pick out these like horrible moments to highlight. So people will have a comprehension of what you went through. Um, well, but so. It's also to help others to be able to talk about their stuff. It gives other people courage to hear us tell our stories. Yeah. But, you know, as ACAs, like, there's the rules of don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Those are the rules that our families embed in us. That's the shame and the denial that... So I guess there's a big part of me that just always feels like I'm being disloyal or I'm going to get in trouble or... I'm, I'm bringing more shame upon myself. Um, but you know, there were fights that led to a frying pan being slammed into the side of my head or broken bones because the door was slammed on your foot. And, um, you know, my freshman year during the swim season alone, which I don't know how long a swim season is, but a few months, not, not super long. Um, I was kicked out of the house a dozen times at least. Um, and that seemed to be, when I got to a certain age and started fighting back, that seemed to be mom's solution was just to kick me out of the car on the side of the road or kick me out of the house and I had to figure out where to go. Um, so yes, thank you to all my friends who took me in and <laughs> let, me sleep, let me sleep at their houses and all those parents, I can't imagine what all their parents thought. Like it must've been hard, hard to see. Um, but I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, all the people who were there. Um, but yeah, it was <laughs> really lonely, um, really scary. Um, we lived out in the country, so I, I was alone, you know, there wasn't, um, it got to the point when I was a little bit older where friends came over and friends would ride their bikes out from town. And so I wasn't quite as alone, but it was a really lonely childhood. Um, trees and animals were my best friends. Um, very thankful for them too. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to grow up and away from that. I didn't want, the last thing you want to be is that, you know, right. 
Um, so yeah, I started having babies and threw myself into trying to be the best mommy I could. Um, and like I said, I knew there was something wrong. I just had no idea what it was. Um, I kind of felt like I was broken. Um, I thought that there must be something wrong with me that people didn't love me or connect with me in the way that I wanted and needed. Um, and I think you have so much shame around that, that you spend a lot of time and energy trying to cover that up, trying to compensate for that. Um, and I so desperately loved my children, um, and even my husband's at the time, um, that I wanted to save us all. Um, I thought if I could just be good enough and strong enough and learn enough and heal enough, like I, you know, started at 21 with, uh, you know, massage therapy school and, and then, um, studying crystal healing and herbalism and lay midwifery and womancraft and, um, on and on and on and on. Everything I did was in this um, pursuit of healing. I didn't, but I didn't figure out what I was trying to heal for a long time. Um, and you know, things just kind of went on and evolved. And, um, and as your children grow, you start to see, um, these things emerge in them that you don't quite understand how you've tried so hard to protect them from it and keep them from it. Um, you know, I, like I said, the, the abuse continued with mom, her alcoholism continued. So even though I was big enough to physically stand up for myself, um, which I started doing it at about 14. Um, There's no defense for the psychological or the emotional. No. And, and then it's your mother, you know? So she was the only one I had. So I was still always desperate for her. Like no matter what the abuse was, I had the same mentality. I thought if I was loving enough, if I was good enough, if I was perfect enough, that it would change. She would want me. She would see me. She would connect with me. She would be kind to me. It's like mommy dear shit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as, as people who experience that kind of trauma, that's then what we go out in the world acting out with everyone else also like um showing up as this person who thinks they're not enough desperately wanting or needing something outside of them to validate who and what they are yeah so you know once again the repeated victimization because you're showing up in this victim state um so it never really changed. Um, and you know, there were incidents where, um, you know, there was only one, I want to say minor incident of abuse between my mother and one of my children. Is it ever minor when your parents abuse your children? I don't know. Um, it didn't feel minor. Um, I quit speaking to her for, I think it was like eight months at that time. And then I finally, that was my first attempt to get into therapy. Um, I tried therapy when I was about 18 for some other things that had happened and um, they put me on Prozac and it made me a zombie and I was like, okay, that's not for me. Therapy, drugs, not for me. Um, just kind of made this blanket, like that won't work for me. Um, so I went back um, trying to go to therapy specifically about my mom. 
And this is probably, I'm probably 28 or 29 at this point. And uh, I tell the therapist about this incident between my mother and my child. And she informs me at the end of the therapy session that she's calling CPS on me um, to open a case about this. And I'm like, well, even though uh, like my, I haven't let my mom be around my children for eight months, like it's, it's a thing. And apparently it was for her. Um, so CPS did their wonderful thorough job of what they do. Um, and basically put me and my children on trial. They came into my home three or four times, um, to question my children. Um, and, and then, and said they couldn't get a hold of my mom, that she wouldn't return their phone calls or any of their messages. And, um, so after about six months, when they finally heard back from my mom and she said, well, that didn't happen that way. I, that's not, that's not what happened. They informed me that it was dropped. Um, so, you know, the, the few attempts that I made towards helping myself, um, didn't go well, A, because I, I wasn't clear on what was wrong and B, when you're in trauma and grief, you're not the great, greatest advocate for yourself. Um, and you know, that's unfortunate, but that's how the story played out. Um, so there was always, there was always this ongoing abuse with my mom, this off and on of, um, trying to have a relationship and then not, um, and as her alcoholism progressed, she just, like we said, you know, the shame was so immense for her that she just progressively was shutting down. Um, she eventually, you know, lost jobs and lost homes and lost, 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 um, and ended up in a <laughs> virtually off-grid cabin, no running water for about 20 years, um, where she just really lived in shame and isolation, um, and poverty and, uh, misery, <laughs> um, yeah. And so it made an isolation. She, she was not interested really in, um, coming to birthdays or Christmases or, um, she just slowly, you know, kept moving farther and farther away. Withdrew. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think of how to share how my story evolved. Um, when I was 39, um, well, when I was about 38, uh, my second husband and I split up and that was, uh, pretty difficult. Um, and him and I had started because our children were a little bigger and we could be around them, um, drinking and going out socially with people and, um, which we never had before. Like we, we were sober, sober for, um, Years. A dozen years, like nothing, not even a beer on Sunday with a ball game or anything like it was, um, cigarettes and caffeine. And that was, that was about it. Um, but because our kids were grown, I, I don't know what we were thinking. Cause he comes from some alcoholic lineage also. Um, I guess I thought I was grown enough that I could 
drink alcohol and it wouldn't be an issue, even though I'm genetically designed to be a crack whore. Um, I, you know, I thought... Nothing is crack whores. <laughs> yeah, nothing... No, no, yeah. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm genetically designed to have some serious addiction issues. Both of my parents did. Um, I don't know what made me think that I could handle it. I guess because I had stayed away from it, I thought I could have it in my life and it would be fine. Um, and, you know, the first couple years were okay. Um, but then the divorce and then a year after that, my best friend died of, um, I, I'll say an accidental overdose because I certainly don't think it was intentional. Um, and she had, she had a pretty serious opiate addiction, um, prescription medication. And, uh, that was completely unexpected, uh, was a huge, huge blow. And I think at that point, um, something shifted at that point. I knew, I knew I was in trouble, um, and still had no idea what to do about it. Um, I was a single mom then. Um, I was at university for the first time in my life and, and doing well at university. CSU. Yeah. Um, I, at that time, I was still at Ames. I was receiving my associates, Associate of Arts at that time, um, but did go on to go to CSU. Um, and I just felt like... Uh, so I, I felt like I had to had to carry on. I felt like it was up to me. I had to try to create a good life for my kids. Um, I did receive some really beautiful grief counseling um, after my best friend passed. Um, and I think I it, it bolstered me a little bit. Um, I then went on to CSU, uh, continued drinking and partying, um, thinking that, well, it's fine. You know, I, I don't drink around my kids. I, I, I keep it separate from them. Um, but you know, all the, all these characteristics of my woundedness were still playing out, you know, this repeated victimization, this lack of boundaries and ability to protect myself from predatory people. Um, I was just kind of a magnet for um, people who wanted to take from me. Um, so lots of poor choices with men, um, lots of poor choices sexually, um, just not, not this capacity to understand um, how to protect and take care of and fulfill my own needs. Just no comprehension of that whatsoever. Um, and then in 2014, and I would say this is, um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny when people talk about hitting a bottom, um, and in most, you know, in of course, AA and most of the 12 step programs, they talk about hitting a bottom and that's a, a pretty pivotal point in people's story. Um, the thing about an ACA bottom is it's usually an, an emotional bottom of some sort. ACA is focused on emotional sobriety um, because as, as children, as we experience this trauma, we kind of get hardwired to um, these floods of, of internal chemicals and hormones that um, 
are just as mind or mood altering as external substances and chemicals, you know? Um, so we get addicted to fear and excitement. Um, we, we live for these floods of internal chaos responses, basically. Um, and we'll subject ourselves to that continual reenactment. Um, one of the, uh, primary traits of an ACA is because we experience so much abandonment that we'll continually seek out relationships with people who are not emotionally available to connect with us because it, it fulfills this, um, this sick abandonment need to, to keep reenacting this. Um, and also, you know, there's the beautiful side of it where our souls are trying to find somebody we can have the experience and repair it with, but that's not usually always <laughs> Um, so in, um, so speaking of an ACA bottom, I think this was, um, I think this was the beginning of my bottom. Um, I, I kind of think I hit bottom and like bounced or skid or <laughs> I didn't come to rest for many years after hitting my bottom. Like I was still tumbling or I, I don't know. Um, I, which is funny because I used to make a joke that the people in my family didn't have bottoms because they never quit digging. They just would keep going. My grandfather died of cirrhosis and he drank until the day he died. Um, so I, in 2014, was in a relationship with um, dating someone who, um, while I didn't have these intense like love feelings for him, um, or even necessarily attraction. He was a easy person to be around because, um, he loved to be outside. He was really active. Our three youngest children were all the same age. So we did a lot of things with our kids together. It was, it was convenient. It was convenient as a friendship and as a, um, a way to spend time with someone with, with my children around. Um, but there he um sexually assaulted me um and i i don't think i'll go into that story because that's that's pretty hard for me to go into in and of itself well plus it's still an open case yeah it is still an open case so um and it within two weeks of that happening so that immediately happened. Um, I, I just thought, holy shit, like, uh, what am I going to do? And I tried to do the same thing I'd always done before and stuff it in a box. But what had happened with that event was it was like tearing the lid off of Pandora's box. All that stuff I had shoved down and stuffed and tried to hide and all the shame and all the trauma and terror and it just all came flooding out. And within two weeks, I wasn't able to even go in the grocery store. Um, if a man walked too close to me, or if, if I could feel his energy, or if he was behind me, or if I could smell him, I would abandon my cart or basket of groceries and leave hysterically. Um, it, my children ended up doing the grocery shopping for about six months because I just couldn't bring myself to do it. It was, um, 
the, the gr- getting over the grocery store was really, really hard. Um, that took quite a bit of work to do that. Um, and I probably within a month, I knew I was in deep shit. Um, I knew I was losing it. I knew I was unable to function. Um, uh, you know, now I late have since been diagnosed with CPTSD. So now I understand what was happening then, but I, I had no clue at the time. Um, I was terrified and I did tell, um, an advisor that I was working with at a, um, beautiful organization who helped me, um, go to finish school and be a single parent to my kids. Um, I told her because I, I was really afraid I was not going to be able to, I wasn't functioning. I didn't know how I was going to continue to fulfill my obligations. Um, I had to tell my children because I didn't, I couldn't hide it. Um, so my older children knew in the beginning and then, um, Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, I eventually told the younger ones. It took a while for me to take the, tell the younger ones because they were young. They It wasn't something they needed to hear. But I think to see your mother in that state and not understand what's happening is worse than, than hearing what had happened. Um, and I was concerned about um, him potentially harming them at that point. Um, I think he was afraid of what I would do um, as far as like going to the police or whatever. And so there was kind of these inadvertent threats made about my son. And so it really, I was, I was in panic mode. I was in panic mode. Um, but I did, I did tell my advisor and she was like, we have to get you in therapy. 
Um, so within two or three months of that event, I was in therapy. Um, the first therapist wasn't a great fit. So boy, howdy, like if I can encourage anyone about therapy, like it's a pretty, um, therapy can be a, a beautiful gift if you find the right therapist. Um, and if you know that that's what you need, please, please don't give up. Please dig deep and or take a friend with you to, to try to vet these people and find somebody who's a good fit for you. So I, I would really just encourage anyone that if you feel like you need therapy, um, please seek that out. Um, Absolutely. I eventually found uh, the first wonderful therapist I had who said to me, what if nothing's wrong with you? What if everything you're experiencing is the healthy response to trauma? Uh, and that, that changed things around for me. That it was like my ray of hope to, to keep going. Perspective shift. Mm -hmm. I then, um, she, was, she moved on in her life and so I had to move on and find another therapist. And I, oh, I cry now. I happened to find the most wonderful therapist. Just a beautiful, beautiful woman. Who I think for the first time in my life was able to see me. I felt seen. Um, she has been so patient with me, you guys. Because I've been with her now six or seven years, seven, seven years. Um, yeah, uh, at least seven years. Um, and boy, howdy, has it been slow going? Um, but I, and since, like I'm saying, you know, this, this hindsight completely changes. And once you have the, the knowledge of what you're actually experiencing, you can look back and you can reinterpret your story. You can reinterpret what you experienced because you now have a different perspective, just what you were saying. Um, but I didn't know how to trust. Um, I, I don't think I had ever had anyone truly accept me, just, just receive, just accept, let me and validate me for everything and exactly as I was. Um, and she did that. I mean, just years and years, you guys of just sitting, listening, just waiting for me to open up, waiting for me to share. And it took that. It took years for me to learn how to trust someone. Um, so yeah, I hit my bottom and I skidded. I rolled, I tumbled. It took years of, um, you know, then, um, then, then once I was in therapy, the, the physical parts of things started coming, um, within, for five months of the rape, I was experiencing extreme thyroid issues, um, extreme fatigue, um, chronic fatigue type issues, um, and so much pain that I ended up having to take a semester of a medical leave from school because uh, I didn't I didn't think I was going to make it through school. I it was it all felt just insurmountable. It was it was so much to try to be enough for. And I was so depleted at this point. Um, 
by all of it, by the whole, <laughs> the whole lifetime coming before that. Um, and um, so talk therapy and neurofeedback, um, which is, if you're not familiar, a, uh, it's a way to kind of help the brain learn how to create um, healthier pathways that lead to more organized information and organized reception of, of external information. Um, it's a, it's a good way to kind of get to those issues in the tissues. So if, if you're stuck in your progress, look into that stuff too. Um, and so years and years of therapy. Um, and then in 2020, um, my mother and father both passed away. Um, close, <clears throat> very close within six weeks of each yeah, other. And uh, I, <laughs> I think it, in a very strange way, set me free. Um, I think my my love and also my shame towards my mother and towards our situation and um, the the regret and the resentment and the was all so intertwined that the idea and, and seeing how much she had lost in her life. Like I, I truly had so much compassion for my mom and how much she had been through and what, what she had done to herself. Um, that it was, it was hard for me to think badly of her. Um, I, like I still had anger and of course those things, but I couldn't, I couldn't outwardly be angry at her. Um, you know, she was just such a broken woman at that point. I just couldn't, um, I could, I couldn't hold all that against her anymore. I, ju I just couldn't. And, and not that my recovery is holding anything against my parents, but it was, um, being able to finally tell the truth, which, you know, this, even this right now, this is very difficult for me. This is the first time I've, other than to my therapist, I've told kind of my whole story other than my very best friends and my husbands and close partners that, you know, um, these are all the things you don't want people to know about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and then when the rape happened, like I was just completely destroyed. Um, and it's taken a lot to come back from. Um, I only ended up reporting a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, basically, well, right before the pandemic. So 2019. Um, and found out that he has three other counts of sexual assault on his record. Um, yeah, like we have stated before, it's still an ongoing case. Um, there's still a lot of fear around why is this man walking around free? Um, if he had these three counts of sexual assault on his record before he met me, why did he have custody of his three children? Why, like... How do you know someone's a predator if they have three counts of sexual assault on their record and and they have their children with them and they're not in any registry? And anyways, that's all the politics of rape, which 
you should look into if you want your mind blown. Um, there's horrible statistics like that the um, the average age of or the average um, amount of time before reporting is seven years. That's what it took me, and that's the average. So that means there's a lot of people who are waiting way longer than that before they feel like they're able to even report. Um, anyways, so I was, I was destroyed. I was just destroyed. Like I, um, I really internalized all that. I really felt like it was my fault. I brought it on myself. I had no business being around this man. I had no business living the lifestyle I was where I was, you know, drinking. And I, I felt like I had just really set myself up for it. Um, and then the, the effects that it had on me that I was so undone and fucked up from it all and that it had so impacted my children. Um, it led to a lot of really, really hard years for my children. Um, and still, you know, I mean that, that, that these are things they'll, you know, that will impact the, them for the rest of their lives. You know, um, I, I don't even know exactly what stage I am in with that healing, but I do know that it was the beginning of my ACA bottom. Um, and, and then in what year did we meet? 2018. In 2018, I met Rex and, um, <laughs> meeting me at my bottom. Um, and I think his love, um, I don't know, cracked me open. Um, and, and there was finally someone worth being broken open for. Um, and he came into our relationship with just so much bravery and vulnerability that um, there was no room for anything between us except the truth. And, um, and being loved in that way when I never had before uh, just changed the game. It changed everything. For the record, I had never loved that way. I've never loved this way. We both lucked out then. Yeah. Um, and I and I truly believe I, for the first time in my life, felt safe. Um, safe to tell my truth. Safe to be afraid. Safe to be fucked up. Safe to be undone. Safe to be seen. Safe to show up. Um. But it was definitely the start. And, you know, shortly after Rex and I got together, um, we found out that my mom had uh, stage four lung cancer. Um, and then by 2020, we had lost her to um, uh, cardiac arrest, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure was related to a lot of the health issues that went along with her cancer and her alcoholism, et cetera. Um, 
And, I, you know, I, even though there were so many wonderful things happening between us with our love and at the same time, you know, this was the first safe place for me to show all my crap and, and let it out, start like letting it out in practice with the, with the person I was involved with. Um, before then it was always this very tightly held control of trying to keep all my crap inside. Um, and we just let shit fly around here. <laughs> and at that point I was drinking heavily, um, definitely using alcohol to manage myself. Mm -hmm. Definitely self-medicating. Um, as long as I stayed busy, like during the day, I was fine. But come the evening and come the dark and come the alone time, I, I, you know, so before I met Rex, I was drinking pretty much every evening. Um, and I, I mean, not, not necessarily drinking to like falling down drunk or anything. Um, like I said, I always tried, I was very much prided myself that I tried to keep it under control around my children. Um, but it was, in my opinion now, I was completely out of control. Um, and, and still going downhill fast. Um, and I don't, I don't, I have no memory of what the fight was or cause those aren't the things that matter, but we had gotten into an argument and, um, this was 11 months ago and he had said something to the, something about my drinking. Um, it, and it wasn't even like a super dig. It wasn't like, Oh, this is your fault because of your, it wasn't anything like that. He just made a comment about my drinking and I thought, Oh, hell no, hell no. Am I going to have anybody blame our issues or what's going on in my life or on on my drinking. And so I immediately marched into my therapist's office and said, this is what happened. Am I an alcoholic? Like, am I, do I need to go to AA? Am I an alcoholic? And this beautiful, wonderful therapist, um, she looked at me and she goes, why don't you, why don't you check out an ACA meeting first? And I looked at her and I said, well, what's ACA? Um, which with my lineage of alcoholism in my family and then also recovery, AA recovery with my uncle and my grandmother and my grandfather, um, you would have thought I would have heard of adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, but I hadn't. And she said, why don't you check out an ACA meeting first? And I was like, well, uh, yeah, I mean, that sounds like it fits the bill, you know? Um, and I came home that day and I hopped online and pulled up, you know, the ACA website and read through their 14 traits of an adult child and I fit every single one. And I thought, oh my God, how long has this been here? Because I've been looking for it for a long time. Um, like if you guys could see my self-help book collection, it's, it's fairly impressive. Um, and so I went to my first ACA meeting and I have been just blown away. Um, it's been 11 months. I've, um, 
worked the step workbook three times, the trait workbook three times. Um, I'm just dying to jump into the loving parent workbook. Um, that's coming here early 2023 um, with a local group. Um, I've done a 90 and 90, which turned into about 150 and 90, if not more. Um, and, you know, when I first started going into the rooms and going into share, it was literally like I devolved every single time, like close to snot bubbles devolved. Um, now I can share and I just get sweaty. I don't <laughs> have to cry. Um, I still get sweaty when I share and I got nine years. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I still cry, but it's not the... not my it's not my lost inner child crying anymore it's not my false self crying anymore it's um my whole self the grieving adult yeah and that's what it's been um literally i you know for for almost a year my meditation and mat practice in the morning my meditation and prayer and yoga which i call my devotions um there was months straight where all I did was cry. All I did was cry. Um, yeah, just endless. I mean, and I'm, I'm still, I still cry a lot, but it was, I thought it was going to be endless. I thought it would never stop. Um, and you know, I can still feel that there's a whole lot of grief there, but I'm, I think maybe if you're fuller with love, you may have a better grasp of grief. But if you're not full enough of love, grief can feel like something that wants to tear you apart. And now my experience of grief is that it's like the it's like the strata on which everything else grows. It holds love. It contains joy. It sustains happiness because our grief is almost like our, our deepest love and our deepest truth and our um, what means the most. So it took a very, very long time to put that together um, and to understand that so many of the most beautiful things about my life, motherhood, um, you know, our sexuality, because my sexuality has been so traumatized, you know, our motherhood and sexuality exist in the upper world and the lower world. Um, and that's love and grief. I believe love is the upper world and grief is the underworld. That doesn't make it bad or wrong or dark or that makes it imperative to, for, to, to have the other, um, so yeah, it's been as much as I'm learning about love, I'm learning about grief. Um, well, to know true love is to know true suffering. Yeah. Like, love isn't fucking unicorns farting pixie dust and rainbows. You know, Not most of the time. <laughs> you know, but it's it's when it is like that, it's what makes the rest worth it. Yeah. Hurts. And it's almost like being able to contain these like opposing forces is what balances us. Yep. 
Um, it's when we're too far in one area without the other that we lose our center. We wobble. Like a cattywampus. Yep. Um, last week, I worked my fifth step with my therapist, my wonderful, wonderful therapist. Um, and they talk in ACA about the fourth step and the fifth step being the shame buster. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, I now understand that all those things I was ashamed of, it wasn't my shame to carry. Um, I definitely, please don't get, don't get me wrong. I definitely have things I have guilt about. Um, and even a little bit of shame because I believe it shouldn't have been that way. But mostly my guilt is clean. It's clean guilt. And I understand that it's the way it is because of how I, how I came up. Um, I understand that it now that it was unreasonable of me to expect myself to turn out any differently. Um, and so I'm kind of swimming in this sea of compassion for myself right now. Um, and learning what that means, you know, learning what, um, the tender compassion of the, um, that, that sweet side of it, um, all, all that that's needed in my life. And then also the fierce compassion of protecting myself and advocating for myself and what that means in my life. Um, it's been fun to watch. Yeah, it's been a process. Um, it's been and fun to watch. Is it painful to watch? Yeah. Because for most of it, I, there's nothing I can do. And I know I've done a lot of the work that you're doing, and it's terrible because nobody can do nothing. You have to sit with it. You have to experience it. You have to go through it. Otherwise, it's there's no value in it. The value is coming through it. Like, in getting to the other side and being like, boom, what's up? feel bad for you because you didn't live through that you know what I mean like I'm a fucking warrior what's up well yeah because all these things that I went through like of course there was the cost but the gifts the gifts that I've received like like my my connection to the divine what I consider my higher power like I wouldn't trade that for anything and I wouldn't have that had I not been so desperate for it. God, um, God saves his most brutal trials for his strongest prophets. And and that was another thing. Like I was insanely strong. This resilience and strength, like I just refused to break. It took a horrible, horrible event to break me. I, you know, all the little ones just kept kind of stacking up and I kept just trying to work around them and work harder. And But it took something just catastrophic for me to to make me break, to make me stop, to make me say, okay, wait, <laughs> we need to look at some things here. Um, and, and then the denial around thinking I could drink alcohol, that I could have this easy peasy relationship with alcohol in my life that was just, you can't have an easy peasy relationship with anything that you're using to be okay. That's not that's not how that works. Well, and, and like the beautiful thing is, is that Mila was right. You're probably, I mean, you definitely have some alcoholic tendencies, and it's probably you know like 
cool breeze away, but your textbook, or at least big book textbook example of uh, our use is but a symptom of our disease. You know what I mean? And I don't say disease. I say disease. Because it's a disease is... Uh, yeah, we've talked about that. You know, it's... And like you're... I believe, and you also believe that we've talked about it, is that trauma is an injury that can be healed. It's not an illness that needs to be treated. Like, healing is the treatment. The treatment is the healing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you know, instead of, like, you figured out early on that taking a pill wasn't going to do it. You know what I mean? I, I don't do that unless I'm in jail, you know, historically. You know what I mean? Um, but, uh, yeah, when you, you and this is, I, I, this is where I, my, a lot of my respect for you comes from is, like, you didn't fuck around. You just got right to the meat of it. You know, I, I had to fuck around in AA for years and then relapse and, like, kill myself before I was like, okay, I'll do something different. You know what I mean? Like, so I, it makes me so happy that you didn't have to go through that, you know? But, I mean, you went through your own and and I and I think and there are alcoholics and addicts who just because of a certain set of choices or you know when when you pour buckets of alcohol down yourself for a consistent amount of time it's highly likely you're going to potentially end up alcoholic cuz that's how alcohol acts on the human body. Right. It it's not always about your genetic disposition or your trauma but when you have trauma no amount of AA and stopping drinking is going to make is going to address that trauma. Right. You have to do the deeper work, and and even Bill, you know, talked about emotional sobriety is the new frontier. Yeah. Like this is where the real work is. Um, and I'm I'm I, I just I'm off the hook proud of ACA and my work in ACA. Um, it's the most beautiful stuff I've done in my life, other than having my children. You know. Um, it's it's the most beautiful thing I've ever done for myself, um, and it's been terrible. <laughs> you know, it's been um, so uncomfortable, and um, all the all the rules that I had set up in my life of how I was going to make it and be okay, they were all wrong. They were all wrong. Isolation is never the answer. Connection is always the answer. Um, and even recently in an amazing interview um, on Commune with um, Gabor Mate, I'll just put that out there in case anyone wants to hunt it down. Um, he's talking about the information in his new book, um, his newest book. And he's always talked about the uh, cure for addiction being connection. But he's now talking about that trauma is the disconnection from self. So when we learn to reconnect with ourself and all those times that we abandoned ourself or neglected ourself or because it's one thing when other people do it to us, it, that's an outside event. But when we do it to ourselves, that's when we end up stuck in trauma. We have to find ways to bridge and heal and reconnect to all those parts of ourselves, all the fractured pieces, all the um all the bits that got left behind. Like that's what healing trauma is, is reconnecting with ourselves. Um, and that's, that's 
terribly difficult for someone who spent 40 some years believing that there was something, something must be wrong with them in order for other people to treat them the way they did. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like, um, swimming in your own taboo. You know what I mean? It's like, um, but I've, I've found that, um, my work in this life is to love myself, you know, to, to come to love this being, um, and this being is deserving of love. Um, and all those things that I've spent my life being desperate for, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm learning to give to myself, you know, even letting you off the hook for all the shit that, you know, that I still had this fantasy thinking that if I had just the right partner and just the right amount of love and just the right home and just the, that everything would just somehow magically come together. And that's just not when you come from trauma, when you come from unresolved trauma, no amount of magical anything is going to make that go away. That's not how that works. Um, and that even of itself was a huge realization to have that there's not some magical event that's going to happen and I'm going to finally be fine. Um, and I'm now okay with the reality that this, this work is going to be part of the rest of my life. Um, it's like being a diabetic or being, you know, um, you know, having any other health condition where your level of liveliness depends on how well you manage that, how well you attend to that. Um, and I, you know, I've since been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and I 100% believe like believe fibromyalgia is a result of, um, not only all the, the stress and trauma of coming up, but the rape, especially, um, there's beautiful, amazing statistics about the correlation between sexual assault and fibromyalgia. You can look that up. Um, so yeah, it's. It's going to be ongoing work, you know? It always is. Mm -hmm. And then I've had the, you know, beautiful opportunity to be with someone who motivates me to do things like a podcast about recovery. And I'm like, well, oh shit, at some point I'm going to have to tell my story. Um, you know, and, but, but I'm now at the place where I, I see the value in my story and I hope in, you know, the, the last thing I would ever want would be more pity heaped in my direction. That's certainly not anything I've ever really Sympathy. been interested in. Sympathy and empathy. empathy. Empathy and compassion I'm very interested in. But I'm more interested in um, breaking the stigma that we have about thinking that our our pain is so dirty we can't talk about it. Yeah. Because if we don't talk about it, we're not getting out of it. We have to go through it, just like you were saying. We have to feel it. We have to sit with it. We have to steep in it before, I don't know, we bubble to the top, you know? Um, it's kind of an alchemical process of, you know? Um, it's, it's even though, you know, like like I said in the beginning, we tell our stories because it encourages others to tell hers. 
Because the reality is, no matter what we've done, someone else has done it ten times better and ten times worse. You know, we're not unique. Our stories are unique, but only in the details. The pain is the same. Yep. Mm-hmm. I've been saying that for 15 years. Yeah. Everybody hurts just the same. So I, you know, I, I, I told Mila, my therapist, at one point in time, I, I said, Mila. "We love Mila." Um, I, she said, "You know, what's your goal?" And I said, "I want to be able to tell my story without crying so hard that people can't understand what I'm saying." High five. Yep. Um. <clears throat> Because then I feel like I'll, it'll be a value if I can share it in a way that, um, cause it's hard to hear other people's stories. You know, it's, um, of, you know, it, it, our heart bleeds for one another, you know? Um, but to be able to tell my story with some composure and a little bit of grace, um, that was the goal. So, um, thank you so much for listening, for letting me share. Um, I hope in some way it's contributed to you in whatever place you're in, in your recovery or discovery. Um, we call it discovery in ACA because a lot of the thing we, we, we were never whole to begin with. So, um, we're coming to finding, to making ourselves whole where in recovery, people are trying to recover something that they lost. Um, so I believe I'm doing both and, um, Wherever you are in your journey, we we both just wish you the best and so much love. And thank you again for listening. Thanks for coming into our home. Yep. Big love to y'all. Yep. God bless. Bye. Thanks for watching this week. If there's anything that we talked about that was triggering, we suggest you follow the links in the show description. If you or anyone you know feels like harming themselves, please call 988 988- or text TALK to 741-741. We hope you enjoyed this show. It was a really good time sitting down listening to Raina tell her story. I hope that some of you can relate. If you or anyone you know needs help, you can feel free to contact us again or follow any of the links below. Namaste. God bless. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.